take our Bibles, open to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth this morning, you just get to the book of Ruth and you keep it there because we will uh, kind of fly through the book uh, this morning as we continue in, in our series, Hidden Figures, as we, as we move toward Christmas, the birth of Jesus, we are looking at some uh, significant people in his family, and uh, specifically, we're pulling from Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy that's in Matthew chapter 1, which mentions, in an unusual way, mentions five of the women who are in the family lineage of Jesus. And this was an unusual move for a genealogy in that world at that time. It was quite uncommon to record uh, the, the females who uh, were in the family, usually just the males, but uh, Jesus turns everything on its head, and, and He is wanting us to, to, to learn something of His grace and His mercy. So we are looking at these hidden figures. We're looking at these ladies who, uh, from the, the, the world's eyes, are kind of behind the scenes. They're, they, they don't occupy a prominent role in any kind of a secular setting, but they are crucial and critical for getting Jesus into this world. We looked first at Tamar, and we saw how that God can take a mess and make a masterpiece out of it. And then last week, we saw Rahab's life and how she was a display of the grace of God. And today, we're in the book of Ruth looking at her role in the family of Jesus. Now, I'll admit up front, uh, I'm going to have to talk faster. You're going to have to listen. I got a deacon's meeting at one o'clock, so that's my time limit, okay? Uh, for me, Ruth is one of, uh, if not my favorite book of the Bible. Her narrative is the, my most favorite narrative in Scripture. In fact, about three years ago, I, I preached an entire series here through the book of Ruth, and I'm not going to rehash any of that. This is all fresh. This is all uh, new, new sermon material for me to preach to you. It's not a read sermon or anything else, but I just marvel at the narrative of Ruth. And, and when I come to this book of Ruth, I've titled the message this morning, A Thrill of Hope. And there's a reason that I titled the message that this morning. Ruth lived during the darkest days of Israel's history. She lived during the time of the judges when the people of God were just in that cycle of sin over and over again. And it was Ruth that brought hope into this circumstance. In fact, the word hope, the first time it's mentioned in the Bible, is in the book of Ruth. Until you get to Ruth chapter 1, verse 12, you don't see the word hope. But in the book of Ruth, it introduces us to the word hope, a thrill of hope. Now, we have to understand that hope from our perspective is different oftentimes than hope from a biblical perspective. When we talk about hope, we're talking about something that we hope, we, we anticipate, we would like for it to come to pass, but we're not really sure if it is or not. It's something we desire, but we don't know what the outcome's going to be. And, and sometimes we have even a, a false hope 
hope, we, we would like an outcome to be a certain way, but we got a feeling that it's not going to be that way. That's our understanding of hope. Biblical hope is entirely different. Biblical hope is simply this confident expectation. You believe that something is going to happen. In fact, you know it's going to happen. It hasn't happened yet, but you are so confident that it's going to happen, and that confident confidence reshapes your perspective. It causes you to view life differently. The story of Ruth is a story of that kind of hope. Her contemporary, someone who is, is also in the storyline of the time frame, but you don't see him mentioned in Ruth, is a guy by the name of Samson. Okay, and I mention that because that's going to be an important detail that I want to try to tie some, some loose ends together as we wrap up our time closer to the end of our sermon in a couple hours. Okay, the book of Ruth. We're just going to jump right in, buckle up. Here we go. Ready? Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of her two sons were Milan and Shilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These, these two sons, they took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. I heard she was a talk show host. And the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Milan and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, this is Ruth being one of them, she said to them, go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Skip down to verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And Naomi said to Ruth, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. That's important. She's gone back to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. This is her profession of faith. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? See, Naomi in the Hebrew has a, a, a sound to it that means sweet. Is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Do not call me sweet. Call me Mara, which means bitter, 
For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord's testified against me, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. As chapter 1 ends, we see two women, Naomi and Ruth, both widows, both have no food, both have no job, and Ruth did what poor people did in those days. Ruth chapter 2, verse 3, she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech, her dead husband, that clan of Elimelech. God had commanded that when the reapers were to pass through, they were to gather all the grain they could. Whatever they could not carry out, they were to leave behind for the poor to come and to gather what was left over. God's way of ministering to the poor has always been to work through his people who have sufficient to give those who have less. And this is what's happening for Ruth. Ruth goes out to glean what the reapers have left behind, and she just so happened, she just so happened to go into the field of a man named Boaz. That phrase, just so happened, is there for irony. It's mentioned, it's used several times in the book. In the book of Ruth, there are no miracles. There's only the sovereignty of God. And God begins to move things around for Ruth's favor. God begins to move things around to take care of her and to use her to bring Jesus into this world. Verse 4 of Ruth chapter 2 says, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. They said, or they answered to him, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who is in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? That's my reading into how he, how he said that. That question in verse 5 is the fundamental question in the book of Ruth. Whose young woman is this? Who is Ruth? For you see, to the Jewish audience, Ruth had three strikes against her. One, she was a Moabite. who was consider, They were considered to be cursed people. The Moabites were the offspring of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. And so they were considered to be cursed people. Two, she is a widow. They would view her, therefore, as damaged goods. And three, she was poor. She had to glean the fields. They viewed that poorness as a sign of God's judgment. Understand that when Boaz sees her, Ruth is probably not looking her best. She's been rummaging through the weeds. She's been foraging for food. Her face is oily and grimy. Her dress is torn and, and tattered. She is not at this moment a picture of attractiveness or beauty, but Boaz is not the typical man in Israel. Boaz is a picture of God's love, and that's why it says in chapter 2 and verse 8, that Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but 
Keep close to my young woman. Stay right here, close in my field. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Boaz said to those young men, I got a lot of fields. I can hide you in any one of them if you mess with Ruth. Not, not to touch you. And, and when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. As a Moabite woman, if Ruth was going to be tolerant in Israel at all, she would have been expected to serve other people. But Boaz says, oh no, no, Ruth, you're going to be a part of our family. You're not going to serve anyone. My people are going to serve you. Skip down to verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and deep, dip your morsel in the wine. Let's have some appetizers. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up, went to the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. Naomi knew what was up. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law, with whom she had worked, and said, This man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Well, 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 may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. And this introduces us to an important concept in Ruth's story. It's the concept of a kinsman redeemer. In short, here's what it basically boils down to. If you owed a debt you would deed out your land to pay that debt. Now, if there came a time that you got enough money, you could buy that land back, but uh, you had to, to deed it out. But if you weren't in a position to redeem that land, you could have a kinsman redeemer do it for you. That person had to have the right to redeem. He had to be the closest living relative. That person had to have the, the resources to redeem. He had to have the money. And that person had to have the resolve to redeem. He had to want to do it. Now, Boaz, he has the resources. He's a close living relative. He, he has the right. But what about the resolve? Look over in Ruth chapter 3. Does Boaz want to do this? Ruth chapter 3 and verse 3. Wash therefore and anoint yourself, this is Naomi giving counsel to Ruth. Wash therefore and anoint yourself, put on your cloak, go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. <laughs> this is my favorite scripture right here. <laughs> then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. I bet he will. And she replied, all that you say I will do. 
So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. I can't read this without laughing. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, what any man would say, who are you? There's a woman laying at his feet. He says, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Let me set this up real quick. There are some texts in the Bible. There are some texts that are descriptive and some that are prescriptive. Those that are descriptive describe what's, happen, what's happening. Those that are prescriptive prescribe, they tell you to do what's happening. This is a descriptive text. I would not give this advice to my daughter <laughs> at all. Now, is Ruth crossing a line? No, but she is dancing vigorously on it, okay? She, this is Ruth's way. She's not proposing to Boaz, but she's proposing to Boaz that Boaz propose. Okay, Ruth is saying, spread your wings over me. Propose to me, I am willing to marry you. And this is something that Boaz is going to be okay with. He's got the resolve to do it. Boaz wants to marry her, but there's one problem. There's another man who is a closer relative, and he's got dibs, and you got to respect dibs. And so, Ruth chapter 4 opens by telling us this. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, this is the man who was closest in relationship, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell, it, uh, tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. Dude, Get this, seal this deal. If you don't, I'll be glad to be the redeemer if you don't want to. So the man says, and notice this man is unnamed. It's not that important to the narrative. The man said in verse 4, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, okay, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Okay, that's fine. You get the land, but you also have to marry Ruth. You have to have children with Ruth to perpetuate the family name. And the guy's tune changes very quickly in verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Boaz marries Ruth. They live happily ever after, but that is not the crescendo of this narrative. The crescendo comes in the last few verses of the book, chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He went in to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and Ruth bore a son. 
Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took that child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. Obed has this son. Obed's son has a son named David. David had a son who had a son who had a son. About two dozen begats later, we get to Jesus, the son of David, the son of Ruth, who was born in Bethlehem, the city of Naomi. God begins to work all the pieces around, and God uses this Moabite Ruth to show us real quick three things that point us to Jesus. Number one's this. Ruth shows us that God desires redemption. God desires redemption. The word redemption occurs close to two dozen times in these four short chapters. In the book of Ruth, you see that the unloved are now loved. You see that the poor are restored. You see that the inheritance that is lost because of sin is reclaimed the generosity of another. You see that bitterness becomes sweet. The book of Ruth starts with death. Naomi losing her husband and her sons, but it ends with a genealogy recounting the names of life. It ends with a genealogy of life of people who were being born. Ruth, watch me, let's pay attention. Ruth ends in a genealogy because the gospel ends in a resurrection. And God speaks life into death. From the world's perspective, life starts with birth and it ends in death. But for the Christian, we are born in death and God ends our story on earth in eternal life. Redemption is a theme in Ruth as well as the Bible. It's the heart of the gospel and it's God's message to you. You see, we were created to be children of God, to live in constant presence of his fellowship, to have a blessing eternity with him, but we sold it all away through sin. But then came Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, the one better than Boaz who loved us as unlovely as we were and redeemed our inheritance back to us. Ruth shows us that God desires redemption. Second's this. Ruth shows us that God uses the most unlikely people for his purpose. Everything is stacked against Ruth. She is a poor, childless widow from a hated race. Let me, let, let me, I mentioned to you Samson earlier. Let me set up for you a comparison. See, Ruth's a nobody in the people's eyes. Samson was the hero in people's eyes. 
Samson was the one who was strong enough to knock down the walls of a huge temple, but it was Samson who was off with Delilah, exchanging his country's safety for a few cheap thrills. Yet here is Ruth. Here is Ruth, a Moabite girl who left everything to follow God. And it was Ruth, not Samson, it was Ruth who brought Jesus into the world. You see, there is a truth that we need to start believing. The way that God primarily works in the world is not through your ability, but your availability. You see, God doesn't need your ability. God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need your talents. He simply calls for your complete and total obedience. The point is not in how much money you give, but whether you give what God tells you to give. The point is not how eloquently you speak, but whether you speak when God tells you to speak and you say what God tells you to say. You cannot overestimate what God will accomplish through your simple obedience. Ruth had nothing other than a heart that decided to follow God, and God used her to bring Jesus into this world. Here's the third thing. Ruth shows us that those who are changed by the gospel then become agents of the gospel. You see, Ruth made a very important decision. She was not going to go back with Orpha to those false gods. She told Naomi, your gods are my God. I will worship Jehovah. And that changed her. And she becomes a part of the lineage of Jesus. She becomes an agent of the gospel. See, this entire book gives us a picture of how Israel was supposed to love others in response to God's love for them. That's why the central question is in chapter 2 and verse 5, whose young woman is this? This is a question that we must consider about people in our lives. Okay, part of my job is to make you a little uncomfortable. It's to allow the Scripture to make you a little uncomfortable. So this is that part, okay, just a forewarning. What about the refugee? Who is that person? What about the immigrant? What about the divorcee? What about the girl who chose to have an abortion? What about the homeless person that you see around town? What about the family member who struggles with an addiction or, or a sexual sin. Who are these people in your life? Are they a problem to be dealt with? Are they just to be used as an example to hold up of what not to be? Or are they people who are made in the image of God? Are they people, individuals for whom Jesus died 
And could it be that they are people God has put in your life for the express purpose of showing them the love of Jesus and speaking to them the grace and the gospel of Jesus and being the hands and feet of Jesus to them? You see, if your life has been changed by the gospel, that's not just for your benefit, and it's certainly not for your glory. If your life has been changed by the gospel, God has done that so that you can then be a conduit of His grace so that you can be his hands and feet. We sing, we talk about how marvelous and amazing God's love is for us. I believe as the people of God, it is time for the world to look at our love for others and for them to marvel at God's love for them. Has there been a time in your life when you've experienced this love? For you see, if anyone from the world's perspective was not a candidate for the love of God, from the world's perspective, it would have been Ruth. A complete outsider in every sense of the word. And yet Jesus used her, God used her, to bring Jesus into this world. That is a message for us to hear today, that you may not feel very significant. You may not feel that your life has any kind of merit, but I'm here to tell you today that if God can use a Moabite girl to birth the Son of God into the world, God can use you to accomplish His purpose. But it starts with a relationship with Him. If you don't have that relationship with him today, it's the only relationship that you must have for eternal life. I believe a relationship with the church is important. I want you to have a relationship with our church. But when you stand before God, he's not going to ask you if you had a relationship with the church. He's going to look at your standing with him. Have you placed your faith in him? If there's never been a time in your life when you've done that, you can do that right where you are. In just a second, we're going to have an invitation to where we're just going to pause before God for, for a half minute, for 30 seconds, and invite you to do business with God. You may need to repent of sin and ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. You do that through prayer, no magic words to say. You simply express the desire of your heart to God, and you trust in His work for you. Maybe there's something else God's placed in your heart. I don't, I don't know how you walked in here today, but I know that God wants you to walk out renewed in his presence. So right where you are, just for a moment, your, your head bowed, your eyes closed. I'm not going to call you out or ask you to do any other thing than to take 30 seconds in silence before God, and you take whatever step it is in your spirit that God's calling you to take. If you decided this morning to take that step, whatever step that might be, we'd love to rejoice with you in whatever is the next step you need to take. 
If you're here on site with us, there is in the pew in front of you a yellow card. It's a next step card, and you can complete that card, and you can do one of two things with that card. When you leave here today, you can drop that in the offering boxes that are located outside these exits, or I'll be standing over at our next step desk. You can bring that card to me and just uh, share that next step that you need to take with me, and we'll be glad to come alongside you, provide you resources as you take that next step. To our guests, we're glad that you were again here today, and we want you to come and worship with us again. If you did complete that Connect card, you too can drop that in the offering box as you leave. Members, home folk, if you brought your offering today, you can put that pretty much you can put anything except IOUs in that uh, offering box as you leave today and we certainly are thankful to have the opportunity to worship with you.